Welcome to the Core Creative Podcast. With this podcast, we hope to promote creative people and businesses in Cork City and County. To find out more, visit corkcreative.ie. In this special episode, Cork Creative visits Skibbereen during Skibbereen Arts Festival, where author Cara Bell talks to four of Cork's leading crime authors. Cara is joined in this live event by Ty Coakley, Michelle Dunn, Catherine Kerwin and Amy Cronin, where they chat about their creative process, their books and the crime genre. This is Killer Instinct, Inside the Mind of Crime Writers. Uh, hello everybody, you're very welcome to uh, Skibbering 15th Sonic Club, is that right? Uh, this building has been here since 1863, apparently. Um, I grew up in this town and I was never inside this building in my life a couple of weeks ago. And so Dennis O'Driscoll down here, who, who's a member of the local lodge, and he rang us up and said he'd love to um, open this room to the public and the community and we wanted to have any events here. So thank you, Dennis. Um, it's great to be here. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous room. Um, and then when Cara <coughs> suggested this is Cara Bell, it was uh, Cara for moderating this event. It's a beautiful mm. setting altogether. So my name is Ty Coakley. I'm a writer and I'm going to read for, for my latest book, which is my fifth book uh, in five years actually. And uh, when I retired from uh, my job in CAT in 2015, I said I, I better start writing because I always <laughs> wanted to do it. So it's never too late. Uh, and my first book 
came out in 2018 uh, when I was 57, so you can do the maths. And I'm much younger now. And it's lovely to be here and uh, with these great writers. And we're all friends as well. We don't kill each other. We're great friends. Uh, we kill other people in our books, but we don't do it. So thanks, Karen. And Michelle. Hi everyone, uh, I'm Michelle Dunn. Um, I don't know where to start with my writing career. I started with women's fiction many, many years ago and um, then my thoughts took a bit of a dark turn and I've been writing thrillers for, for the past while. Um, so I've based my, my last two books are uh, standalone thrillers and they follow my protagonist, Lindsay Ryan, who is a former Irish soldier and UN peacekeeper. Um, as am I, which is why she was easy to write. Um, so yeah, they're, they're both based in one Cork city, one in Cove, which is where I'm from. Um, and yeah, so my, my new book that's due out in March of next year is something very different again and has taken an even darker turn, I think. Um, but yeah, so I, I, like, like Tyg, I've been writing for a very, very long time um, and just slowly battling my way through the, the publishing industry. And yeah, here we are. Amy. Hi everyone and thanks Cara. Um, thanks everyone for coming. So my name's Amy Cronin. Um, Twisted Truth is my second book. It's book two of a three book trilogy with Poolbeck Press. So the third book will be out in January and then um, I'm moving to HarperCollins then for two more books and the first of those is out in September next year. So um, I always wanted to be Jessica Fletcher basically that I could just <laughs> be nosy and solve crimes and write books. Um, I have two kids and they were both born very close together so I took a, a break out of work and when I was looking for my CV to try and go back into the, the workplace I found probably a quarter of a book that I had written maybe 10 years prior to that and I just thought oh my god I, I think this is good and I'll maybe actually finish something. So I did and I sent it to uh, Poolbeg and they offered a three book deal and it was right around the time COVID was happening. So some of the books were released when shops were closed and, and then released a few months later when they opened. It's been a bit of a journey, but um, just kept writing, just love it. The darker, the better, as you can see from this book here. Um, but I do think these type of books are a great escapism and, and obviously you're all crime book fans. So it's lovely to be here tonight. And finally, Catherine. Uh, yes, um, thanks Cara and thanks so much for inviting all of us and it's great to be here with um, my three Cork Crime writing buddies and uh, great to be in Skibbereen and in this amazing place which yeah. definitely is going to have at least one body in it. <laughs> <laughs> it's made for it I'm afraid. Uh, sorry Dennis, uh, down the end. But, uh, anyway, so this is my third book, it's called A Lesson in Malice. It's set in University College Cork, because um, I've always really liked uh, Inspector Morse, and uh, I even like the prequel Endeavour even more. And I like, lo I like lots of books set, there are loads of crime novels set in universities, and I always just, and of course there's millions of books set in Trinity, and I just thought, well, why not U University College Cork, UCC, which is where I went myself. And I walk around there all the time, so I just thought it's ideal for a murder. Um, and I'll give you the start of the book in a little while when we're doing the reading on it. But this is my third book. There's also two previous books also set in Cork. The second book, Cruel Deeds, is set in a law firm um, in Cork, a, a big firm, uh, when one of the partners gets uh, viciously murdered. 
and very good. <laughs> <laughs> and the and the first one then is uh, is is sort of well it's sort of related to a law firm as well but and the reason for all of that is because I'm a solicitor myself so I decided to kind of write what I know. I haven't been writing that long but once I started I kind of, I had always thought about it but I was afraid to try and once I started then I just got going. So um, yeah that's it, glad to be here. So we're going to start with a very short reading from um, Tyke and just to set the mood, give you an idea of his um, style um, and the author's got to choose the excerpt themselves. <coughs> so just sit back. So I'm going to read from uh, Before He Kills, which is a sequel to Whatever It Takes, which came out in 2020. Not a good year, as, as Amy <laughs> said. Uh, so it, it has the same protagonist, Detective Garda, Tim Collins, who's based in Cork City. And there's two investigations in this book. Uh, murder of a woman in Cork City with dark overtones of misogyny and a drug ring based in West Cork. I know that would never happen, <laughs> but uh, uh, I made it up. Uh, and, it, uh, and it goes to Skibbereen, guys. It, it does, it does. Going, okay. <laughs> That's right, it does. Yeah. And, uh, and there's a Dublin uh, arch criminal, uh, an old nemesis of Collins, uh, leading the gang, uh, Eddie Jones. And two men, men have been murdered, uh, one in Union Hall and the other near Goline and uh, so Collins after finding the second body who's Bobby Farrell and uh, he goes back to Skibbereen to to question Bobby's brother Ted Farrell uh, in Skibbereen Garda station so I'll, I'll read a, a little bit of that. Skibbereen Garda station was a much more modest building than the one in Clonacilty and it's unsuitably for holding Ted Farrell immediately struck Collins as he approached it. Single story at the front, finished in plain brick, it resembled a, a suburban home more than a police station. Despite the two Garda badges on the front wall, the defibrillator to one side, and the high telecommunications mast behind it. At the back, it was a split level with a single cell on the ground floor. The media presence outside was no surprise, though it was still before 8am. Once the news of a second murder would get out, the number of camera crews and reporters would lead to a feeding frenzy. An RTE reporter, Bridget Maloney, and another from Cork City, John McLaughlin, made for Collins and Nula, that's his partner, when they got out of the Audi. <coughs> Collins, McLaughlin said, is it true ye found a second body? Collins shrugged and walked on, so the news was out. Inevitable, but it still annoyed him. But the main thing that he'd be the one telling Ted Farrell that his brother was dead. He nodded to the ASU officer stationed out the front, Karen Costello. Hi, Karen, he said. I hope you like an audience. It's going to be mental here before the day is out. Nice to see you too, Collins. The minute you arrive back west, the bodies start piling up. Collins grinned. He liked that woman. She could floor points too and sing the boys of Barnashrada as well as he they never would heard. When he noticed a facial board had rotted above Karen's head, the grin left him. 
It was symbolic of the poor funding of the Gardaí by successive governments. When people like Eddie Jones cut loose, the politicians started flinging blame for their own failures. Buckley and Heaney, who were the senior officers, were conferring in the wide corridor. Buckley waved Collins and Nulo into the office on the right, which was already stifling hot. Geez, would they not open that window, Nulo said, pulling at the latch. It stuck. Don't waste your time, Collins said. Welcome to Skip. <laughs> I want to put to you is why did you choose crime as your as your genre of choice? Um, we know it's one of the biggest selling genres in, in the world, um, but why crime for you? Um, I think if you go right back to when you're really young, the stories that you're told always have a bad guy or character in them. Even Little Red Riding Hood has this threat, um, and it's really intriguing. And for me, it's what I read the most. And I do love to get swept up in a mystery. If you remember back, like the phenomenon that was who shot JR? Mm -hmm. yeah. So everyone loves a mystery. And in a crime novel, you kind of get to travel on the shoulders of the main character and work with them um, as they come through the mystery and through the drama and the bad things that happen. And if you're very experienced at it, you can guess before the main character can do that. And then it's wonderful for me as a reader if I've guessed it and then there's another twist that I didn't get. Um, I think they're really immersive books. They just really draw me in. Um, we can't escape the crime around us, the news headlines. We, we've no control over that. Mm -hmm. But I think crime books are safe because we can close the cover, we can put it down, we can walk away. But we can also trust the writer that they will give us a satisfying conclusion at the end. And that's the formula, isn't it? That it was kind of Usually, fine. not yeah. if you're reading a Game of Thrones or something yeah. where <laughs> anyone can read it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I do. Um, no, I agree with you. I think we can vicariously live and we can see the dark side of humanity, but from the safety of our own homes. That's I think it. there's the whole um, kind of car crash thing as well. You know, yeah. we all we all love to see the drama and we all love. Yeah. you know to be yeah. feel like we're a part of it but we don't want any of this to actually happen to us but yeah. um when you're in when you're stuck into a good crime novel you're kind of you're living vicariously through the characters that are there aren't you and you get to be you get to be the hero that's chasing the baddies or you get to kind of glimpse into what makes the baddies baddies is yeah. which i think yeah. is 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 just as fascinating that's that's what's fascinating to me actually is when you have these dark characters in a book or you know, they're, they're, they say there's no such thing as a bad person, just good people who do bad things. Um, is there a killer what, in all of us, though? I, you see, yeah. I suppose that's, that's the fascination for me, is what, what turns people into, you know, or what pushes people to do the things that they do in our crime novels. <laughs> um, were they born that way? Are they born psychopaths? Or did some lots of horrible things happen to them to make them just vengeful or crack it's nature or nurture and exactly from reading all of your work there tends to be a socioeconomic kind of mm. element to it as well that generally they come from impoverished backgrounds or yeah. you know are part of organized crime gangs and all of that um but absolutely i think it's um a very big debate as to whether you are actually have a chemical imbalance or that you are kind of socialized into it yeah um, 
So yeah, I wonder what you take. What you think? Well, what I, I, you I, I I started re reading my first crime novel, well, <laughs> and it was my first book because I said I've been reading crime novels set in L.A., Louisiana, mm -hmm. Edinburgh, Oslo, so southern Sweden, and I said, why not Cork City, you know? <laughs> and, uh, so the, the character Collins is from West Cork, but he lives in Cork City, and he's very attached to the north side of Cork City because he went to school there, and he played hurling for the Napiership Club, and and he's uh, very angry about the kind of depredation and uh, and misuse of uh, uh, resources in the north side of Cork City. So he's very angry about that. Mm -hmm. And he's a complex character. He's angry, but he's also uh, gentle in other ways. So yeah. uh, that, that's why. He's a wild card, I think. He is, he is. And Maverick yeah. kind of breaks that's the rules. And he does. I yeah. kind of love him. And I think in the second book, he got a new partner, um, Deirdre or something. And that's right, she says yeah. one line, she says, I thought he'd be hotter. <laughs> that's <laughs> right, yeah, like, yeah. I thought he would be. I know, I know, <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. He I is know. flawed, like he's a good <coughs> character. Yeah, it's really good. But um, but crime, I suppose, um, yeah, the ability to kill is in us all. I mean, mm. it's a primal thing. Um, I suppose back in the day, we would have done it without thinking. But I suppose law, as you would know, Catherine, and religion has, <laughs> you know, inflicted this kind of sense of control or order on us as human beings, which we need. But why don't we play by the rules? Why do we break the rules, constantly break the rules? And it's just, is it in us just to, it's a really kind of interesting thing. And I suppose that's why people are so addicted to this genre, because again, you know, there's a bit of you thinking, God, could I do something like that? And it actually reminds me of Kate Crowley in, mm. in your book, um, yeah. the moral <clears throat> aspect of murder, mm. that sometimes you have to do it. I think no. a very compelling character is a good person mm. who is convinced they have to do a bad thing. And if you can convince the reader that this character had no choice, yeah. then you have a very complex character on your hands. Mm. And yeah, Kate does kill for a very good reason. Oh, I so. would have done the same. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 100%. And, and that's what you want the reader to think, isn't yeah. you want the reader to say, go on, you have to do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, Just because do it. there's injustice, isn't there, yeah. in, in something like Jean Valjean stealing bread to feed his family, and then he had to do 19 years hard labor mm. for that, you know? So the law doesn't always serve us. It doesn't always serve us. Justice, you know, mm -hmm. is kind of interesting. Yeah, okay. And I suppose the other thing um, with your main characters, as you have obviously four main characters, so we have Detective Tim Collins, we have Lindsay Ryan, who's ex-army, then we have Anna Clark, mm -hmm. who's, um, I imagine her to be very present proper. Yes, she works she as um, clerical staff in the Garda Shikana, yeah. which kind of makes her a good character because she's not actually a guard. She can break the rules a little she bit. She can, well. and it released me of the pressure of having to have all my Garda procedures perfect, <laughs> because yeah. she's not really a guard. She's not really yeah. a guard, okay. And of course, Vin Fitzpatrick, who is a solicitor, um, and you know, very interesting kind of analytical sort of thinking. <coughs> and what's interesting as well is you write her from the first person. The others are all from the third person. Um, but actually, Finn is written from. You know, we see inside her head. Yes. So why did you decide to write her like that? Well, the first book um, uh, with Finn in it uh, was originally a third person where she did this and she did that, and um, I just found uh, I decided kind of at the last minute 
that I was going to make it first person because I just thought it would be better for the reader to to kind of get right into the action more. And I remember saying it to my agent at the time that I just <coughs> felt it was wrong in the third person that it should be first person before just before he sent it out to publishers. Oh God! And he said, "Well, look, write a page and see what you think." So I wrote a, I converted it into first person, and he said, "Well, what do you think?" And I said, "I know it's right to do it in first person." And he said to me, okay, we'll do it, but do it fast. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to spend all of Christmas converting oh, it into from, from third person to first person, but I never regretted it. Um, and uh, it, I just felt that people were able to see. One of the things actually that people always say to me, and I wasn't really sure whether it would be true or not, is that they really like Finn. Mm, and yeah. I kind of thought, she's a very annoying person in many ways and very difficult and awkward. Uh, but I think that the reason that they like her is because they are, in, you know, they're doing everything with her. They're not watching her from the outside. And they kind of, even though I, I kind of leave it open to the reader to kind of put their own interpretation on what she's doing some of the, you know, most of the time, really. I don't ever really, um, or I do sometimes, but a lot of the time I leave it quite open. Um, so people are kind of in her and they kind of, put in their own motivations for what she's doing, that they have their own theories and so on. And people actually get quite, um, like there was almost fisticuffs um, in, at one of the readings I was at. I won't say where now, but um, there was, people were kind of, one person was saying, no, no, this is terrible. She shouldn't be doing that. And another person was saying, no, re she really should be doing that. And it's ideal for her. So I mean, they were talking about her boyfriend, Davy. Oh, And it's like some people think she's, he's so wrong for her and other people love him. And um, so, yeah. So anyway, it's just, yeah, that's why that's why I did it in first person. It just felt... I could get deeper into it somehow. It creates, it's very good because it creates extra tension because I, I, one of the books, I can't remember, she was like in her head, yes, I'm going to ring somebody. I'm going to ring somebody. I won't say the character now. Yeah. And I was like, ring her because yeah. obviously this is the key to the whole thing. Yeah. And I was just so frustrated, but because it was first person, yeah. I was objectively looking at your train of thought or yeah. train of thought and it was really... And then sometimes she might forget to do something and the reader will know that like you, you were supposed to be doing that and you yeah. haven't done it. Yeah. So go back mm -hmm. and do it. So so yeah, I, I think it, yeah, that was the the idea anyway. Mm. Brilliant. Okay. Will we do a quick reading from, from Me? Michelle? Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, okay, so I'm going to do a reading from The Invisible, which is the second Lindsay Ryan book. Um, they are standalone thrillers, but I'm going to read um, a very short excerpt from the, the prologue. And it is a military scene, even though these are not military books. But because they're standalone, I just like to give the reader a bit of insight into where Lindsay's PTSD came from, uh, what moulded her into the person that she is now, and the many, many, many problems that she has. Um, so basically, uh, Lindsay is living with PTSD, but in true Irish fashion, she has sought no help whatsoever for it. She's denying, you know, nothing is wrong with me. So she's walked away from all of her military family. She's walked away from anybody who ever knew her. So she gives people what they want externally, but internally she's struggling massively. 
So every time she closes her eyes, basically, she's brought right back to the event that, that changed her life or a nightmare version of that event. So I'm just going to read um, the open, I'm opening with that just again to introduce her and her problems. So basically, she's on patrol in Syria with this group of men who are the closest things to brothers that she's ever had. Um, Lenny Jones, one of the guys, has just um, given them a story, one of his one night stand horror stories to try to lift the mood and the tension that's descended <laughs> upon them all. Um, they all just have a bad feeling in the pit of their stomach about this one. So I'm just going to pick up from there. It was a routine patrol, but everything about it felt different. Dread weighed heavily in the pit of her stomach as they set off, and that same dread settled back into place each and every time <coughs> she relived it. She still heard the nagging voice in the back of her mind telling her that something wasn't right. It whispered too quietly back then, but she heard it much more clearly now. Each time her mind took her back to that road in the Golan Heights, she felt the momentary lightness that followed Lenny's monologue, which was exactly what he'd set out to accomplish. Then came the girl, the most beautiful child she'd ever seen skipping towards her. Night after night she came with her beaming smile. Night after night, she made her way far too quickly towards the improvised explosive device that would vaporise her. In her dreams, like then, Lindsay watched on helplessly as she came closer, ten feet from it, eight feet, six feet, two. Then came the panic of being physically unable to react, not being able to run or shout or do anything to stop the carnage that was about to be unleashed upon them all by which time she welcomed the blow that propelled her through the air and onto the ground like a rag doll. But the numbness that followed at the time abandoned her on these frequent trips back to Syria. Unlike then, she now felt the blood spatter, the pieces of bone, sinew and brain as they came to land on her, mixing with her own blood and embedding themselves deep within her. She didn't feel the shrapnel that tore through her skin and burned its way into her flesh then either, but she does now every single time. Night after night, she has to feel Lenny's calloused hands cupping her face and slapping her cheeks. She has to see his dust-covered face, frantic at first, but then smiling hesitantly. It was an unnatural kind of a smile that said, let's pretend you're not completely fucked here, okay? His eyes, though, were as genuine as they ever were, and they told her all she needed to know, that she wasn't alone. Night after night, she has to see those lights being extinguished by a bullet to the back of his head. Again, she must feel the fragments of him become a permanent part of her. Lenny Jones, her brother, her friend, whose head, night after night, exploded all over her. I have to say, um, it was an amazing character. She was almost, you know, I suppose the trauma she used exercise a lot didn't she to sort of just feel anything and I got the impression mm. that she was emotionally numb mm. couldn't you know she's very very damaged yeah really damaged so she would really exert herself and run around the city sometimes in the middle of the night mm. um, and it was just really interesting it reminded me of Sylvia Plath if you ever do Sylvia Plath at school no no where she talks about everything being colourless colourless so or even Emily Dickinson, do you ever learn, you know, when she says after great pain, a formal feeling comes where you don't actually 
your body shuts down as a self-defense mechanism. And I really got that from her. And I thought it was really interesting how you talked about the camaraderie she had with her family, her military family, mm. that they never had to stay in touch. They could meet four years after. Mm. So where did Street come from? Is he based on somebody? Not really, but I suppose um, it was. you have to, with the military, you have all these background characters. Mm. and. They were easy to write for me. I served with the UN in Lebanon and the people that I served with then, I could go years without seeing them and we pick up instantly where we left off and that camaraderie is always there and it's, it is forged by, um, by experiences that you have that I suppose most people don't have. Um, so she has this team, Street, Adam Street was, was in charge of their patrol. Um, so they were they were a very close team, and all of the guys in the team they're all in this book as as kind of background characters. They've all walked away from each other, but they're all suffering from this day. They're all dealing with their their trauma in different ways, um, but they all are keeping an eye on each other from afar, kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I suppose Lindsay's Lindsay punishes herself. That's why she she tears into you know running in the middle of the night because she can't sleep because this is what happens when she sleeps. She goes straight back to where she was. And there was a line she said, "I was three seconds too late." And that and, yeah, you know, and you just kind of have to think about that that guilt that she feels. That's it. She feels so responsible for. It was and one then, of these things that happened in slow motion for her. They're on this patrol, there was a football on the ground and there was kids playing football and this little girl is walking along and it kind of, she has an uneasy feeling, but what, you know, is it a football? And uh, it's just too late by the time she, she does run and the child moves at the same time and it just all collides to, to go horribly wrong and change her whole life. Children, I can't. And I was reading, you know, I just can't cope. And actually, it's interesting when you're reading crying, you're forced to confront things that you don't like to think about. And we tend to shield ourselves from awful things. Um, um, but it actually forces you to do that. But as Amy said, you can close the book yes. and escape from it. So there's a sense of safety in it. <clears throat> We're at our kind of moral standpoint looking at it all. Yeah. So when I was looking obviously through your books, um, there were a load of themes that kind of came out for me, like human trafficking, drugs, rape, prostitution, organised crime, gangland wars, grooming, stalking, corruption in the force, so a bit like the Ben Coppers in Love of Duty, um, misogyny, um, all of these things, and, you know, all in Cork. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, that's the thing. Why, why did you base them all in Cork? Like, I'm, I loved it, um, but I suppose, as you said, you were sick of hearing of all these, you know, fancy places like Oslo and stuff. <laughs> but for me, it, it because it was so familiar, it was really unsettling because, <laughs> you know, obviously yours opens with a murder and a road, the back road of Clannacity. Yeah. And I was like, I work in Clannacity. <laughs> and you know, when you read about something far away, it doesn't really affect you. But I was reading about the Chile Terrace, the Shaky Bridge, you know, you live in, well, Finn lives in, I keep saying you, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, so it just makes it a little bit close to home. So did you walk the streets? Did you, yeah, pretty yes, much? Yeah, okay, so. and that's why I was just talking to Amy before we started, uh, because, um, we were talking about holidays and I kind of said, well, I won't be having, you know, I, I don't go on holidays anymore. I haven't gotten on holidays for years since I started. I'm not prop, I mean, I go away for the odd little bit weekend, but not a two week holiday in Lanzarote or anything because my holidays are spent in Cork writing. Um, and it's very handy when I am writing to be able to go to the place that I'm writing about and check out the details. Um, so that's one of the reasons I stay in Cork. The other reason is I might as well be writing in my own house or in my own garden as anywhere else because 
not going to be going out or doing anything. It gives me the time to um, to focus on it. But yeah, for me, it was really, really important to have it grounded in the city and that people, that the reader would feel like they were walking the streets with Finn. Um, because I think that Cork City is really beautiful, but it's also quite dramatic. You know, you've got the hills and you've got the island and, you know, um, like in, in my first book especially, um, I did a lot about how you're walking on water all the time. Uh, you know, there's rivers running beneath your feet and that's quite an unsettling um, sort of place or it can be if you want to set a crime novel there. There's kind of, it's when, you, when you're walking around a corner in Cork, it's already dramatic. Uh, I think if you kind of open your mind to, to looking at it, and there are all these little hidden places in Cork as well, you know. Even now, I'm finding I'm living in Cork for many years, and I, I can still find a little hidden terrace that I didn't know was there. And you might have to go through a door to get there, or up these, like even the steps up to here, you know. Yeah. All of that just kind of sets things off in your mind that makes you think, oh God, I wonder what could happen here. <laughs> and in fact, Finn's house, she lives on Barrick Street. Mm -hmm. But I was, I don't live on Barrick Street, but people think I do. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, not, not only Cara, like loads of people think I live on Barrick Street. But I walk up and down Barrick Street all the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are these little lanes off Barrick Street and I saw a lane, a very, one of the tiny lanes, and at the end of the lane there was a, a stone wall and I kind of thought to myself, what if there was something behind that stone wall? So I decided that that's where Finn would live and that I would put a door in the stone wall and put her house in behind it. Mm. And uh, so that's, yeah, so it comes from a really, it kind of comes from the ground up for me um, and I hope that that makes it more real for the reader. Because obviously it's totally fake, but you know you want to while you're reading it, you want to be able to suspend your disbelief mm -hmm. and kind of feel that you're in the mean streets of Cork. Yeah, along well, with and, Yeah, in your first book though, I think water was a motif. I think it opened. With yeah, that rain that and storms yeah, and flooding and, yeah, and all, all that, of yeah. that, and even the death. You know, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. And yeah, I really felt it was misty and it was. Yeah, you know, yeah. it was really good, but it was so cork, you know. Yeah. I think somebody else mentioned about the airport with the fog, I think at some stage I was like, yeah, <clears> typical, <throat> you know, so it is, it's very, very good. Um, so I suppose, Tyke, you, in your this book here, the mm -hmm. second book, you did mention incel. Yes, right. So, so do you want to explain what that is? It's an online movement uh, of basically men who hate women and they radicalize young women online and uh, we see that through people like Andrew Tate. It's very common, unfortunately, and I want to... One of the themes in this book is uh, violence against women and Collins is very angry about this <clears throat> because uh, something happened in his teenage years and uh, so there's an online kind of a conspiracy around that. So that was one of the themes. And it's very tough <coughs> to write, very you know, very tough. And, and uh, because uh, I'm a man and, and writing about violence against women, I had to, you know, portray the, the horribleness of it, but also wanted to kind of uh, be respectful of the victims and uh, the, the whole system which doesn't support women in Ireland uh, as well and and I did a lot of research around that and uh, you have to 
how'd you research when, when you, uh, you know, write a book? Because you, you can't get in the way. So I tried to, to hide that and uh, so. But it's, it's in the news all the time. We've actually is, yeah. in 2022, That's I think right, it was yeah. 15 women That's violently right. killed That's in Ireland. Right. And That's the upward right. trajectory in the last 10 years is with 850,000 women globally, you know, victims of femicide. So it's not That's something right. we can ignore. <clears throat> it's not anything about anything, but the fact that it has come up in most of your books, actually. Yeah. I think, you know, there's been Violence against women, definitely. Um, and again, that was one of the reasons why I murdered a man in this book. Yes, <laughs> I loved that actually. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, I sorry. <laughs> 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 you know, because it was always women, and, you know, and it was, and it's not that it's, you know, it's reality, I suppose. But in cell as well, it's um, it's a portmanteau of. of Involuntary celibacy. Isn't That's it? right. Yeah. 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 So it's yeah, you're right about yeah. Andrew Tate and all these yeah. dangerous yeah. and yeah. young boys yeah. are being really influenced yeah. by right. how yeah. women should be punished if they're not subservient. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, 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 sexual against violence against women, ninety percent. Don't never are reported, yeah. mm -hmm. and that's a, a, a plague on yeah. our society. I really liked that in your book. I thought it was really current and you know scary, hard to read as a woman, but but really fascinating as well. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and I suppose the other thing I, with your PTSD, and obviously we have Anna Clark. So like Anna's parents, can I yeah. can I say that? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Maybe you want to say it. Um, Anna's parents. Um, they they crashed their car when she was a teenager on their way to Dublin and the, the wreck of the car was found but their bodies were never found. So they spent some time in limbo assuming that their parents stumbled from the car and then perished somewhere on the motorway or in a field or something like that. But they didn't find their bodies and in the first book Blinding Lies um, it's coming up to the 10 year anniversary of their disappearance and Anna lives alone. She has one older brother, but she's very alone. She's very isolated. And I think that did come from being in lockdown and writing and feeling isolated, kind of channeled into the character. But she's trying to find them um, and she she wants to hire a private investigator. She wants the case re-examined. Um, and obviously in this book, she finds all the answers as to what happened to her parents and where almost almost all the answers. Um, Which is interesting. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, she was targeted in the first book, you know. Yes. It really much, you know, yeah. it, was, it was lovely, as I said before, that she wasn't a guard, that we could see it from, you know, an ordinary person's point of view. And, yes. You know, but yeah. she still had access to all those case files. She, yeah, so she did, um, she did, in college she studied maths and statistics and I thought this would be important to relate to her as a person because when you're dealing with numbers you're dealing with order and Anna's life was completely disordered in the middle of her teens and she had no control over anything. She moved towards the guards um, and ended up probably underusing her education but wanted access to the files and then quickly realised that, which is true, that you can only access files you've created yourself on the database. So she was kind of stumped there, but she does find a way to gain information as to what happened to her parents. Um, but it does shape the character and it does shape her drive. Um, and then when her friend Kate Crowley is forced, I would say forced, to kill a man at the beginning of, of Blinding Lies and flees the scene, the, the crime 
crosses Anna's desk. She recognises that it's her friend and she knows who's going to be looking for her now. So she um, inserts herself into that. So it is a kind of a parallel investigation. Um, but, yeah. Do you want to read? Um, okay, so uh, one of the detectives in Blinding Lies that helps Anna is called William Ryan. And he's lovely. And he's trying to solve a series of random murders across Cork City. Now the mask in the cover, uh, some people don't like it, but I, I think it, so there's something with Anna's parents where their true identities were, were masked. And also the male killer in this book does, as Lady trying to see, he does wear a mask that he had especially made of his dead father's face. It's so it's, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> He's just a total psychopath. <laughs> so um, this kind of is like a homage to my own um, terror of horror films. So uh, I watched, unfortunately I did watch a lot of horror films at an inappropriate age. So these people do use pseudonyms, which could be Michael Myers or, or anything like that. And they are filming murders for their own um, enjoyment. So I did base it in Cork, as you know, but I did create one place that's fictional, but hopefully not for too long, which I called the Rebel Event Centre down in the um, Centre Park Road as part of this development that will eventually happen. So in this case, the, uh, just a, a selection, um, the killers have booked themselves in for a private tour of the Rebel Event Centre and brought along their camcorder. Um, so the lady that's giving them the tour, her name is Marion, and I'll just read this short scene. Um, the couple in front of Marion looked unusual. She remembered the woman's name from a brief glance she had given the slip of paper the receptionist had left on her desk, Miss Hyde. But she couldn't remember the man's name. He didn't speak, he didn't offer it. Welcome to the Rebel Event Centre, Miss Hyde, and she left the sentence open, waiting for an introduction, but he didn't turn to look at her. Oh, you can call me Jacqueline, the woman shook her hand delicately, her eyes roaming the vast entrance hall of the event centre. The couple intrigued Marion. The woman wore a fur coat, fake in Marion's opinion, and lots of badly applied makeup, bright red lipstick, heavily cold eyes. Her exuberance more than made up for her companion's quietness. He wore a dark coat and trousers and a baseball hat pulled low. He looked like her minder, not her colleague. What she could see of his face was extremely pale. The skin around his jaw and neck sagged grotesquely as though scarred and puckered. His very presence unnerved her. Marion had a strange sensation that the hall was closing in around her as the woman's posh accent billowed in the space, bouncing off the white tiles and chrome finishes. How many bodies does the centre hold, she asked. Bodies, Marion paused and laughed uneasily. We can cater for groups of up to 1,000. We've some big musical acts lined up for the summer, actually. She had begun her sales pitch and briefly felt more relaxed, but her eyes flicked to the man continuously, nervously. The woman calling herself Jacqueline Hyde ran her tongue along her thick coat of red lipstick. Marion felt like a small, weak animal cautiously eyeing a larger predator on the food chain. One thousand, the woman said. That's just perfect, but today it's just us, just three. Marion's fingers flitted to the string of pearls at her neck. Yes, just us. Let's begin the tour. She turned away and walked briskly into the middle of the atrium, her heels clicking on the cream tiles. She glanced, glanced nervously at the man's lowered face, then down to the carrier bag in his hand. She was resolved to get this tour over with quickly. She paused in the middle of the atrium at a marble statue depicting two men holding sticks in the air. 
and returned to her dependable marketing pitch. This statue was commissioned especially in homage to Cork's great hurling achievements. The sticks you see here are called hurleys. You can see one of the players is holding a ball. That's called a slitter. The sculpture really draws the eye, wouldn't you agree? The woman nodded enthusiastically and pulled a small handheld video recorder from her bag. You don't mind? It would really help my client to get a feel for the place, she said sweetly. Marion did mind, but she didn't object. She nodded, her eyes finding the man again, her nervousness spiralling. Marion squared her shoulders and smiled brightly, the effort of trying to stay calm concealed. They followed her to the foot of the staircase on the left of the atrium, the, gla the glass wall showing little traffic on the road beyond. As they ascended, Marion talked non-stop. She turned around occasionally to speak directly to the couple, but only the woman engaged in conversation, her video camera held aloft in her arm. The man's head stayed low, only the top of his baseball cap visible. At the top of the stairs, Marion strode forward, on carpet this time, the sound of her heels muffled by the soft wool. This is our hospitality suite. We have a long bar, as you can see, with capacity to serve food. Her voice trailed off and she stared in jaw-dropping, undisguised horror. The man had taken his baseball cap off and raised his head. His face looked melted and reshaped, muscles sagging, flesh clumsily piled around bones. There were no eyes. In the space where the eyes should be, there were deep indents, the same colour as his skin, as though the eyelid, eyelids had been sealed closed. His lips were pale and barely distinguishable from the rest of his face. They looked sewn together by invisible thread, pressed and distorted into a grotesque shape, like rotting flesh held in place. As she stared in mute shock, a dark stain spread from the crotch of Marion's cream trousers down her leg. The sound of laughter startled her and she spun to face the woman, who had moved to stand behind her, camera raised to eye level. She was laughing so hard she had trouble keeping her hands steady and gripped the camera now with both hands. Tears of laughter rolled down her cheeks and she let them fall. They made um, her eyes a chilling, watery blue stare. Black mascara lines halved her face and her wide red mouth hung open. She looked like a monster. Something glinted in the light of Marion's peripheral vision, a knife, the longest blade she had ever seen. The man stepped forward and Marion's screams were lost in the manic laughter of the woman who just managed to hold the camera steady. Incel have talked about this, this mm. obviously this camera thing is a dark web um, it's, it's a dark web group yeah. um, so, so has so, the internet made things easier for, for yes. do you think? I do, I do think so and yeah. it's also offered a lot of material for crime writers yeah. um, and unfortunately you do you do know these things exist and you do, you do know these things are happening and our google search histories would make some interesting reading but it's all out there it, it is happening so um, this, this is a group online killing people, filming it, where it is then rated on the dark web and somehow it found its way into Cork and somehow it found its way into, <laughs> into Anna Clark's <laughs> life as well. So yeah. she's involved in it kind of in a little way. Um, so yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Now the formula for crime writing, um, when you look it up, is very simplistic. It's like it, it, it's a murder. And obviously, I'm not saying the work is simplistic. What I'm saying is that do you follow that sort of cliche of the murder, the investigation, and then the sort of resolution? resolution? Yeah. I think you have to. You yeah. have to. I, th I think to an like you yeah. can you can play yeah. with it, but like yeah. your book really has to start pretty closely with a dead body yeah. in some form, you know, um, and then 
then there's you know the the investigation or the fun and games element of it and twists and turns along the way mm-hmm. and then in the end there has to be a resolution because if there isn't it's really unsatisfying for the reader absolutely you know so yeah. there it's, it's sort of like there's chaos throughout the book and then at the end order is restored and if it isn't it's not what the reader wants and it's not what I want either because I read a lot of crime um, and I want to um, I want to not know who the murderer is I want to be led on a merry dance by the by the writer and then in the end I want to have my breath taken away and all the way through as well uh, but then in the end I, I just want everything to be okay in the end so your red yeah. herrings you have yeah. all of that going on yeah. and would you plan when you write, do you plan? Do you sit down, like in line of duty again, like go back to it? But you know, they have a big board and they've all the pictures and they link all the all the characters. Do you do that, or is it um, very much sit down and? I'm, type? I'm an awful pantser. I, I start with a character and I. I often don't know what's going to happen until it happens and I get a big shock when there's a twist in the tale <laughs> and I'm like, oh. um, but then recently I just, I, I signed with a new publisher recently and I was ch- chatting, I had to give them what's coming after the book that's coming in March, you have to tell them what's coming next yeah. and they wanted the whole thing outlined and I hadn't a clue what was coming next so <laughs> I had to sit down and come up with some, well, loads of ideas, there's always ideas there, you get ideas everywhere. Um, but yeah, I did, have to, for the first time in my life, have to plan the whole book out. And I, it's done now, and I'm looking at it going, <clears throat> that should actually be really much easier. <laughs> yeah. I suppose this has always worked for me to be a pantser, because I do sit down, I have my character, I build that, and then it's a case of who is she, what kind of situations is she going to find herself in, and I start writing and the whole thing just happens. And it's, I love that, I love it. And um, Now I have this full formula that I've written myself as well, and I'm like, Okay, how, do, how do I get from there to there now and what's mm. going to happen in between I, I'm, I'm a little bit um, overwhelmed by that concept I, I like not knowing what's happening yeah, so I agree. I'm trying something new now and it's, uh, we'll, we'll see, yeah. <laughs> we'll see how there's it goes. a sense of power in it like we're gods creating <laughs> with our characters but there is and you know you can go back and you can change it around well that's it you, yeah, you get to the end and then you go back to and, yeah. and I, I always call my first draft a vomit draft I just literally down onto yeah. paper and and then go back and, and clean it all up a bit. But yeah. I yeah, I enjoy that process. So for me this whole new thing now of planning is is, is yeah. And with you with um <coughs> Tim Collins, of course. And mm-hmm. um, he was a very famous hurling player. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So I know you've written another really successful book about sport. That's um, right. Yeah. So were you a famous hurling player? No, no, no. Yes he was. Yes he was. Because you knew a lot about it. Very successful. Very modest, but very successful, yeah. Very interested in the, you know, phenomenon in the GA in Ireland. So you've David Clifford, who's a big star in Kerry, and he was captain of Kerry yesterday. But he's a superstar, and people adore him, but uh, you'll meet him in the shop or or the pub or or the the church, you know, so that's the... Dichotomy, uh, you know about that, and uh, that's very interesting. But getting back to the planning uh, story, I, I'm very bad at planning as well, and I always, uh, when I have a draft uh, done, <clears throat> I look at the tension. Uh, crime writing, uh, all fiction really, is uh, based on tension, and I know. Uh, 
that in in this book uh, there wasn't a lot of tension at one stage and I said to my wife one night, I'm going to have to kill someone. <laughs> and she said, who are you going to have to kill? I said, the nicest fellow in the book, I have to kill him. And I killed him, he was a young guy. Yeah, oh, that was yeah. an awful scene. Awful. <laughs> yeah, awful. I know, no, 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 I know. But brilliant, though. It was a brilliant, brilliant. scene. I loved, yeah. How, yeah. I loved how Collins responded to it, actually, yeah. which was is not what you would expect to, yeah. to be the response. That's I loved right. it. But Collins, he, like you were saying, that Anna likes everything organised. He's the same. He's very tidy, and his girlfriend, Violette, the French one. That's right. She's yeah. not. No, he, no. But it's no. like he's trying to get control in a life uh, yeah. where he has no control. And That's I mean, right, yeah. yeah. With your exercise all of that there's just kind of the pushing it it's an interesting thing mm. and i suppose childhood trauma oh definitely. yeah definitely yeah childhood trauma mm. trauma uh, you know and then obviously you know collins you say had an experience when he was younger but also that's he right. has to fill that void of playing top level sport that's right yeah. he has to fill that passion that excitement exactly you know, yeah. and and he's, he's, he's addicted to it and uh, it, it comes yeah. on the next book uh, as well yeah. Uh, because he's addicted, he wouldn't ad admit that at all. Yeah. No, because he's he's a contradiction actually. Mm -hmm. But uh, mm -hmm. he is really, and and when he was helpless, when the guard was killed, uh, you know that uh, affected him very badly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. For me, it was the foxes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm not going to say any more there. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh my god. Okay. But just on the point. Yeah. Of, oh, sorry, of planning. Of I, I did listen to Dan Brown. You know, the author of the mm -hmm. Da Vinci Code, and he said that um, if, if you could imagine braiding a child's hair, it's it's a big wide point in the book that you've all these strands and threads, and as you go down through the book or as you braid down the plait, the plait gets thinner and all the strands get more tighter, bound together. And that's how a good thriller should go. And I think that was very interesting because there's a lot going on in my books, as they are in, in all books, and readers are well able for that. But as you near the end, the plot should be pulling together yeah. and all the strands should be pulling towards the central point and that comes tighter and tighter and tighter and there sh there should be no loose pieces at the end that's right so um he, that was a great analogy that he had um but it's like you you sit down and kind of put the bones of something down and then when you start writing it gets a lot of flesh on it and red herrings like we're yeah them. yeah <laughs> and, they, and i love them you know because they're very nordic where they're kind of going off on a tangent you're convinced that's the killer and mm. then it's like not yeah and know. that's because uh, like I don't, uh, well I, I had to plan a bit more with this book but my first two books I didn't plan at all um, and even with this one I, I really had to throw away the plan because I found it was too confining for me mm -hmm. and I, f I felt a lot more comfortable when I had no plan and I just, it, it's, I knew who the characters were but as to who they, what exactly they were doing I didn't and that's better for me. You know, I'm definitely feel freer with that, you know, so I totally get what Michelle is saying that there's a kind of a bit of a fear of having to know what happens. You're I'm much free comparing this outline that I have to the finished product yeah. to see if they're going to be anything alike. Because and I, I think like I think, yeah, I think once you have something down, you can just veer away from it then, yeah. you know, yeah. it doesn't you don't have to stick to it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but so I like how the end of the book, for example, with Finn now, you know, we get resolution with the with the murder. Yeah. But her character, there's still question marks as to her, 
you know, emotions, her feelings. Yeah. You know, we don't get resolution with her. And no. I think, you know, I felt that with all of you, actually. I was hoping Lindsay and Street would get together, but that didn't <laughs> happen. Um, and there was just a kind of a sense that there's more to come. And I think definitely with Tim. Yes, yeah. You know, and even with Anna and yeah. with Carolyn. Um, when is that coming out, by the way? January, I think, oh, but I'm yeah. editing it now, so it could be sooner. But oh, brilliant. Yeah, yeah it could be great. Mm. Yeah, so, like, you know, and again, you know, just the way you craft your characters is just really admirable, actually. So, yeah, so. Um, so the other one I wanted to talk about was Mandy Breslin, actually, just before oh, yeah. there. Yeah. You know, and mm. uh, she's in Cruel Deeds. It's the book. Yeah, uh, the before this. Yeah, I really Shannon further, which is the you know obviously you know getting enjoyment out of the suffering of others, which is an awful flaw <laughs> in humans. But we all have it, and there's nothing we can do. And there's no English word for it. And the reason is because the, the British, the Victorians, when it came, they're like, oh, we don't ever do that. But yeah. we do. And like, you know, we see Prince Harry self-destructing now. We're all glued to it, but we shouldn't be. But we do, we like, it's like Shakespearean to see the mighty fall. But Mandy had it all. She was the partner. Yeah. She was beautiful. She had a beautiful house. Gorgeous clothes. Gorgeous clothes, the whole lot. And she's brutally murdered. And what is it in us that that's kind of, you know, I don't know. It's just, it was interesting. I don't know, but I do think that people like seeing wealthy people um, uh, the people who have it all then suddenly get the rug pulled out from under them. Yeah. And, you know. yeah. Like Bryce Tuckerby and the Iraq thing. He goes, days of work to watch it. I called down to a friend of mine. She's like, I can't talk to you now, I'm watching this. You know, yeah. I was like, oh my God. But again, yeah. it's, it's a Shakespearean thing, yeah. isn't it? Like, they, a hero. You know? Yeah, and they do like going into, you know, really fabulous houses and having a little look around. Yes, I loved her house. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so I absolutely love it as yeah, well. Like, like, you know. Oh, no, and everything was so tidy. And I was like, oh, dude. Yeah. But anyway. <laughs> and the gorgeous furniture polish, the beeswax furniture yeah. polish and everything, yeah. like the, down to the tiniest yeah. detail, the wide plank flooring. Yeah, I loved writing that house actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and do you, do you know people on the forest? Do you know people mm. in forensics? Where do you get all your information? Because it's really good, you'd like, be it's really detailed. Yeah, you'd be surprised how much you absorb. Mm. Um, so the book I, I just wrote is called The Dark Hours and that will be out in September next year and there's a lot of forensics in that but I didn't ask anyone about that but you just know things you watch shows and you read books and you just know that um, you could put drag marks on a victim's back mm -hmm. no and you know then their body was dragged and you'll know depending on those marks whether that was pre or post-mortem and then there could be pebbles embedded in the skin so you're directing your detective in different ways because you can't have resolutions fall from the sky they have to be given clues which you have to give your reader as well but you do just know these things from you wouldn't be nervous now about the accuracy of it right? no because maybe it's wrong in some minute way but the majority of readers are reading for enjoyment yeah. they're not reading forensically with the red pen and planning to email the writer so you know you, you can't you have to have some level of close to reality but you you can't get bogged down on this thing because a good editor will pull you up and go, that doesn't make sense. But also, um, you do just absorb things and you do just know that 
they will do a toxicology mm. on things and they will be yeah. looking for fingerprints and shards of glass and DNA evidence and you, you do absorb it from what you read and watch. What you watch yeah. Yeah. I have two friends who are guards and one of them is my grumpy guard and the other one is the one who still has some optimism. <laughs> so it's great to have, I, I, I could fire the same question at both of them and one will come back with a fairly, you know, uh, like from the manual answer and one will give me like paragraphs of ranting and raving about all this it's brilliant because you get you get everything you need yeah. <laughs> yeah. I find it emotionally draining to write this because no. I find it sometimes yeah. when I read them in quick succession mm. um, which I was doing um, prior to this I found it quite a bleak view of human nature in the end I was like I need to read something in lighten or something and it'll just <laughs> yeah. but you know when you're writing it do you ever get kind of caught up in that or is it a separate I don't get caught up in it, but... Um, Being an ex-army member, for example, does it bring back that to you? I, what it brings back to me is, is, is I suppose, the camaraderie and mm -hmm. the... the my, like, I had some uh, hairy experiences, I suppose, um, but overall it was positive, so there's nothing... I can see how, how PTSD can happen, I can see all the situations that can occur, um, and it brings you back to, I suppose, how other people live, like... Mm -hmm. Um, I, I spent time in a war-torn country and saw how ordinary families try to raise their children in these circumstances. So, if anything, it, it, it creates empathy, I think. Well, I love that in your second book, The Invisible, the idea that, um, when, you know, the human trafficking, mm. child trafficking, sex trafficking, it's awful to read. And that's but why I actually set that book in Cove, because right. it is, I'm from Cove, I adore Cove, just a disclaimer there, I love Cove, it's a beautiful tourist town where people come for the scenery and for their holidays, um, but I suppose my point is that um, there, there's, this is kind of set in a cafe in town and there's a, a laundrette two doors up, purely cliched, which is a, a brothel and there's human trafficking going on there. It's kind of a, a, a secret, an open secret. Everybody has their suspicions, um, but n nobody has the, you know, the guts to do anything about it because the owner of the building is a very dangerous person. Um, but I suppose the point is that these things are happening in every single town in Ireland and it's not just prostitution. It's we, we, we read about nail bars being raided, we read about farms being raided and people being trafficked just for the sole purpose yeah. of, of forced labour and it can happen absolutely anywhere so that's why I set this book in the hometown that I absolutely love, this beautiful town with a dark secret yeah. um, because that, it's, that's life. But I think the next generation are going to look back on this um, like Brendan Kennelly, in the book of Judas, he said, you know, in order to serve our age or something like that, we have to betray it. It's not verbatim, no, but the idea that we always look back in hindsight at things that happen and give up, you know, say, oh, that shouldn't have happened, the Holocaust, the mother and baby homes, all these things. And Sinead O'Connor, God rest her, stood up in the early 90s and she tore, you know, the picture <coughs> of the Pope. And I remember my mother saying, she's mad, isn't she mad? And everyone thought she was crazy. But she betrayed her age. She actually had the courage to do it. Now we can look back and say that with your whole thing on the trafficking, that's what we're going to look back on. How we we let the migrant crisis go on, how all of this is going on, and it, nobody's really doing anything mm. about it. Mm. It's quite sad, actually. Yeah. So it made me really think about that until I faced it. Yeah. But you know, <coughs> so Catherine, if you'd like to read a little bit. Please. Yeah. But uh, so I'm going to read something that isn't quite as graphic as the other. Yeah. <laughs> just something a little as it. You know, it's just a kind of much, just a sort of an easy introduction because, you know, for me, like, 
Yes, there's darkness in my books, but I always try and bring a bit of light as well uh, to try and balance it. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so this is just kind of the start of the book for Finn. Um, she's going, she's, yeah, she's going, she's walking into UCC. So if anybody who knows UCC will hopefully recognize it. <clears throat> that damp Wednesday in April, I walked from Western Road through the ornamental ironwork gates that mark the main entrance to the campus. Before leaving my house less than half an hour earlier, I'd scraped my long, thick black hair into a tight, high ponytail. It swished back and forth as I moved, reminding me that I should have washed it. Fifteen minutes to nine, and the avenue was busy with staff and students, all on foot, all trudging forward without visible enthusiasm. Some branched off via the stone staircase towards the south. I kept on, up the curving slope, edged with mature greenery and trees that met in the middle. Ahead of me, where the ground flattened, lay my destination. But I was early, and so, to kill time, swerved right in the direction of a small, paved viewing promontory by a wall topped with railings. Gripping the narrow vertical bars, I peered over the cliff edge into the watery meadows below and the wrinkled lee rushing eastwards. I wished for a little wooden boat, a blue one. I saw myself floating with the current under bridge after bridge, past the tip of the island and the mouth of the harbour as far as the open sea. Except I had this thing to do, a thing I should never have said yes to in the first place. Turning, I passed over grass and tarmac and up the seven steps and through the carved limestone Gothic doorway that was the rear entrance to the Aula Maxima, one of the university's original buildings. Unbuttoning my charcoal raincoat, I emerged from the short, I emerged from the short vestibule into the hall, large, vaulted, book-lined. Parallel to the back wall, a table with a floor-length white cloth was set out with stacks of cups and saucers and a burko boiler. Along the side wall above the bookshelves, huge pointed north-facing windows lit the space, empty but for the wall of past presidents' portraits, all male, staring darkly down from their gilt frames. Moving up the aisle briskly, between the banks of seating to the front, I sent a text message. In the aula, am I in the right place? Seconds later, the reply came. Through the left-hand door at the back of the dais, coffee and other fortifications await. A sudden loud noise, as if a book had fallen off a shelf, startled me. I jerked, swung a half circle on my heel. But the room was as empty as it had been, and I found no likely source for the disturbance, although, it has to be said, I didn't look very hard. I went on about my business and thought little of what had happened, putting it down to a cross-draft, a creak of the old wood. With the benefit of hindsight, I see how wrong I was that morning, about how the day would go, about what I would do that evening, about nearly everything. UCC's my alma mater and reading it, I was like, Jesus, again, it was like, oh, you know, these things can happen, you know, which is amazing. And just very quickly, your antagonist, your villains. Now, obviously, with Michelle and Catherine, you know, for the most part, we don't really know until the end, but you're very clear about Tom Gallagher from the beginning, and obviously Dominic Malloy. Mm -hmm. And we know 
who yeah. they are and we know who the villains are. Yeah. But I really liked with Tom. I know. Uh, yeah, I felt really sorry I, for him. I love him. I know. And you know he's awful. He's not. And, no. you know, he's jaded and his son yeah. dies and his so, wife is not calling. Yeah. Um, Tom is the, the baddie and Anna is the good guy, but they are the same and they both do everything because they love somebody. And Anna's best friend killed Tom's son at the beginning of the book. Um, she had no choice in it, but he he's facing the death of one son. And because of the all of these actions, another son has been taken by rival criminals. He can't grieve for one son. He's searching for another. His wife is falling apart. And in the midst of all this, this young clerical officer is trying to help Kate Crowley and comes to his attention. But they are almost the same person, but their moral compass are skewed in different directions. Um, it's all for family, it's all for friendship, it's all for the, the love of people that they really care about. But the things they're willing to do are quite extreme on both sides. Mm. So he is not, like Michelle said, there is no black and white, there is no good, no bad. We're all a shade of, of different colours and in that regard. He's ruthless, like. He is, but he has no choice. Yeah. Well, you love him. I do. I do, I do <laughs> love him. But I, I do feel sorry for him, and um, I think he, he's a well-written villain. You know. In um, book three is more Tom. It's more for Tom. Okay. And my editor just came back and said, I really think I love Tom now. Mm -hmm. But he gets more and more ruthless. Yeah. You know, he oh, right. and. Um, but he has to be. He's like Macbeth. To be boss is nothing. Exactly. He has to be yes. feared. So, yeah, for, for the love of his wife, which is, again, you're talking about violence against women, and Tom is my bad guy, but he does not perpetrate violence on women. He has no time for that. He adores his wife, but he will happily kill anyone else that threatens his family. So he's a, a nuanced baddie, um, but I hope not a cliche baddie. No, um, I like him. Yeah, that's it. I shouldn't like him, but I do. But Dominic Malloy, I don't like him at all. No, <laughs> no, no. He's Nobody straight likes up him. bad. There's he no is, good is, thing about yeah. him at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But interesting. And yeah. I like how he, like you say, is very <coughs> similar to <coughs> Tim Collins. They're that's both right. That's so right. similar yeah, and they hate each other. They're, they're Two signs of a coin, yeah. actually. Yeah. 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 And, uh, yeah, and one has to win. That's and right. It's like yeah. a game of hurling. It one is, yeah. It like is, Dublin, yeah. was it yesterday? That's and right, yeah. 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 yeah, but anyway, yeah, I thought it was, it was really interesting. So, future plans, you know? So, another, you just released a book. So yeah, I just released a book. So, there, there, is, there will not be a book next year uh, in 2024, but there will be a book in 2025. Right. Um, I think that's right, yeah. And also, the book, you know, is nowhere near ready or anything like that. And will it be Finn? It mightn't be Finn. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> it mightn't be. Oh my goodness. Yeah. No. Okay. But it probably will be Cork. I'm changing publisher, mm -hmm. so um, I got an agent last summer. Mm -hmm. So Poolbeg, if anyone is, is, is writing, they don't require you to have an agent. But I did have, get an agent last summer and so now I have a two book deal with HarperCollins and that's for the UK and for the US as well. So the Poolbeg uh, third book will be out I think in January and it's called In the Shadows and then the HarperCollins book will be out in September next year and that's called The Dark Hours. Okay, yeah. yeah, so I have um, Grace is my new thriller coming out in um, March 
Um, and not giving any spoilers, this all comes out in the first page. But Grace is a barista who lives and works in um, a less affluent area of the city. And um, she's lovely. Yeah, you wouldn't think she has a man cable tied to a chair slowly dying in his own bed <laughs> in her house. But she does. Um, but it's not her fault. She's had a terrible childhood. And she is a serial killer, but you will love her. <laughs> Speaking of you. <laughs> so Tim Collins number three is coming out next year. And, uh, and uh, if, if I can finish it in time. And it's a twin story, uh, one in set in 1990 and one set in 2017. It goes into why Collins uh, joined the guards and... Uh, is the butcher uh, in it? So he is, he is. That's, that's 2017, yeah. So, and uh, that features... Uh, Tim has to become a, a homeless person uh, so to, to catch the butcher. Oh, yeah. the because you always mentioned it and I was like, did I miss the book? And I actually Googled it about four times to know was okay. there a book prior to that. No, so I'm no. delighted now you're oh, yeah, tying up that big say. So any advice you give to aspiring crime writers in case there's any here today? Anything you would say as published writers? Persevere. <laughs> <laughs> don't, take, don't take criticism and or rejection personally because everybody gets it at some stage. Mm -hmm. um, and just just... If you do get that rejection or you do get that criticism, just learn from it and put the head down and just keep going. Don't don't stop because it's such a subjective thing. Somebody could read any of our books and absolutely love them. Somebody else could read them and absolutely hate them. So it's so subjective. So just keep going. Um, I would say finish what you start. There's always a point in the middle of it where you think, oh God, is this going anywhere? But then once you get to the end, you almost begin. You'd, I always rewrite, but with great insight then uh, of what I want the story to be. So if you've started a book, do try to finish it. Um, don't abandon it. Finish it and it will, it will reinvigorate itself by the time you get back to the start to do your rewrites. Um, I'd say if you want to write, just give it a go. You don't have to know what your what it's going to be before you start. Mm -hmm. Just give it a go, and the next day give it another go, and the day after that give it another go, and try and just bring that freshness to it every day, um, or if, you know every day that you're writing. If that's only Sunday afternoons, then just do that on a Sunday afternoon. But do give it a go. Don't be kind of lying on your deathbed saying, I wish I'd tried yeah. to write that story. Yeah. You know, just give it a go because nobody's going to know. Uh, you might as well give it a lash. Yeah. I waited long enough, you know. Um, so don't, just, just give it a try. Yeah. People like stories. Maybe they like yours. That's it. Yeah. Siobhan McGowan said recently, don't wait for the muse. Just turn up for your writing. So I liked that. You know, don't wait to be inspired. Just sit down and turn up for it every day if you can and get something down. So my final question is, how much of your main character, of you, excuse me, is in your main character? So are you a country western fan? Oh yes, I am. <laughs> do you do yoga and breathing? I do, yeah. But other than that, I do not have a boyfriend called Davy or even remotely like that. Or, you know, and she is much braver, more reckless. 
more, you know, uh, yeah, she would. She does things that I would never in a million years do. I'm much more cautious than she is. I would think that I'm more like Sadie, who's Finn's friend, the guard, yeah. than than Finn really. But yes, I do. Yeah, I do use some of the things that I like. Yeah. yeah. Are you analytical? No. So you know. <laughs> I struggle to add. So um, <laughs> I thought you were the exact same. No, so, like yeah. my character is very logical. Yeah. I'm a very emotional person. Yeah. Uh, my I think Anna Clark is how I imagine I would be if I was Jessica Fletcher. Mm -hmm. So this childhood <laughs> dream of becoming this nosy detective who writes books on the side. So. Yeah. But I do think um, the isolation and fear of being in the first lockdown became part of Anna's life. Yeah. Uh, she lives alone. There's someone kind of break, maybe entering her stalking house, stalking her. her. Yeah. Um, she didn't feel safe, she didn't feel threatened, and she didn't feel in control of anything. And that was how I felt writing. But I didn't realize that until afterwards. But no, she's definitely not me, but she does feel part of how I felt at the time. Yeah. And I can't let Lindsay go without mentioning Frank, her dog. Oh, I love Is him. Frank real? Uh, no, but inspired by an Alsatian that I grew up with. So it's service <coughs> dog, isn't it? Yeah, Can so he's her, she has PTSD, Frank is her PTSD service dog. He's, he's practically human and all the feedback I get, <coughs> I get from that book mentioned Frank, the oh. people love him. Yeah. Um, I'm so worried for Frank. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I'm worried for Frank because I wrote him quite old. He's, yeah. he's an old dog. Yeah due to retire himself and I'm on book two and I'm thinking can I age Frank what happens if Frank dies I don't know and um, so no, I, I, I don't know you, Michelle if Frank dies I, I, no, no I can't I wouldn't forgive no, no. myself if don't I killed off Frank, Frank. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love him I yeah. love Frank yeah mm. very important character mm -hmm. and are, are you a rule breaker Frank? no I'm not no I'm, I'm the opposite of Collins which is I, I, I think I wrote him because he, I, he's the total opposite of me I'm too soft to be a guard altogether. Yeah. 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 I, re I really admire them yeah, because they, they have stuff jobs. Mm. Uh, but, uh, He's quite emotional though. He takes so much of it on. Mm. You know, he doesn't remove yeah. himself from the cases. He kind of immerses himself, I think. Yeah. And yeah. I think Lindsay did that as well, when mm. she was in helping. And I think Anna definitely does. I mean, it probably comes, and Finn, of course, but I mean, it probably comes from their childhood experiences. Mm. And their, Kind of saviour complex. Did you get that when you were writing them a little bit? That they can't really save themselves. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah, true. that's true. Yeah, yeah. that's a good point. Yeah, kind of but, but gives them a bit of control in their own where their life doesn't yeah. have it. Exactly. Anymore. But the reader has to also, you know, identify with them. That's yeah. very important yeah. as a writer. Yeah. 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 yeah, and that's why they have to be flawed. They can't that's be right. heroes, exactly. you know, so yeah. it's really good. So, audience, is there anything you'd like to ask before I write who's here? Anyone have a question? <coughs> yeah. Oh, Adrian. Um, you mentioned the trauma that your protagonist had suffered, right? And if you look at like, lots of the great detectives, they have fundamental human flaws and an inability to hold down relationships for lots of them. Um, unless you're in bits of a murder or something like that. Um, and I just want you, is that part of the formula? Yeah. or? Is it writers kind of working through your own demons or is something else completely different? Well, I know Joe Spain um, ha purposely picked a detective that had a really happy marriage and no vices, you know. So there is a, a lot of detectives are um, kind of borderline alcoholics and 
have a broken marriage or something like that behind them. So she purposely chose Tom Reynolds, who was very happily married. Um, but I think in order for characters to relate, or readers to relate to a character, you try and make them a little fractured because we want readers to kind of fall in love with them a little bit and walk alongside them and kind of want to mind them maybe a little bit because then they get really invested. Um, that's just kind of what I think. Yeah, like I, I deliberately made sure that Finn doesn't drink alcohol in the in the book because I didn't want her to be kind of sitting at home with a bottle of gin or, or whatever it would be because that happens a lot in books that you know. Um, but she does. She she has had a difficult history. Um, her her childhood was difficult and. It just it didn't really plan it. It just came up in the first book that that's how the story developed, and I yeah. Her vice just, is Davy. Her vice is probably Davy, yeah, and she, but she yeah she has had this difficult past, and so that means that the way she relates to the world is a bit um, you know can be confrontational um, in some ways, you know. Uh, but it's just you just try and make them real, and that's how she grew for me <coughs> as I was writing it. wasn't a deliberate formula, really, as such. You know, mm. I think you want to avoid cliches with your with your flaws. But we, as as readers, I think we we do like we do identify with um, with flaws, and we do we are a little bit um, obsessed by human damage, aren't we? We like a, a good damage psyche to come along and and draw us into a, a story because there, I think people with a lot of our, a lot of our main characters kind of have nothing to lose, kind mm. of thing, and that that's why they can put themselves into these situations. That yeah. if you had it all to lose, you'd be a bit more cautious, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, that's so, true. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. very well put. put themselves in. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think you have to mix the delight and the darkness as well. Yeah. Catherine mentioned that <coughs> it's very important because you know there's very dark passages in all our books. And then you have to lighten it to give a, a reader a kind of a landing space after that. Mm. Yeah. Like Shakespeare transition scenes. That's right. Yeah, exactly. exactly. In humor. Like Clancy, when you know they stole his espresso or something, <coughs> and they right. got it back, and then he said, "Next time, get the blue." That's whatever. right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 Very good. Yeah, you have to do that. Any other questions? Yeah. Is on a good place to be a writer? Oh, I think it's a great place to be a writer, yeah. And Cork is a great place to be a writer. Um, it's very easy to get to know other writers in Cork. It's kind of big enough that there's an awful lot of stuff going on, but small enough that you can actually get to know people. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, there's a great writing community. Place. Yeah, there, there is a really there. good, yeah. Yeah. But like we met at the Fiction in the Furry event. We did, yeah. So we all had books out during the pandemic and we couldn't have um, launch. a proper launch. So there was this thing called Last Launches. So all the authors got together. That's and that's where we all met for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. Which was and it was a great event. Yeah. And there's a lot of support for writers in Ireland. We're very lucky actually yeah. in this country. Mm. That was a lovely event. Yeah. So getting the tax breaks. Yes. Oh. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. 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 Something you have to worry too much about, you know. Yeah. Yeah. None of us are exactly no. millionaires or anything, no. you know. No, you don't. It's not. We're not in it for the money. There was a time when my smooth one. Yeah, once they were established. Yeah, yeah, that's just, yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah, yeah. There's a limit on the amount. So yeah. if you, yeah, I think it's fifty thousand. We're, I don't think any of us are troubling that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah.
Yeah, Lydia. I'm curious to how do you keep a track of all the plots that are going on. So if you're going from one book to the other, and oh God, did I say they have blue eyes? Yeah. Or oh, yeah. you know, were they were they here there before? Or do you have an Excel sheet? Do you have posters all over a wall? <laughs> when it comes down to the the minute of the details, making sure that you're not mis- you're not stepping back on yourself, if you know what I mean, how, how do you all have different methods? I text myself. <laughs> <laughs> Very basic. I send myself a message. And my problem is, um, is, is character names when I'm starting something new. So I'm working on something new at the moment and there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of characters. Well, it's not a lot of characters, but they all have their own backstory. So when I'm at the very start and I'm coming up with all these characters, um, I do text myself the name, who they are, and like a word about where, what their background is. And so then I obviously have this list of messages that's only from me to me, and there's nothing else in there except what I'm working on. So it's just a simple thing because I always have my phone near me. If I'm writing then, I can just look back at my message and see who's who if I'm, if I'm okay. stuck. I actually do the same. Oh. Yeah. Very simplistic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it can happen anywhere. Yeah, if I, I write things down, but I, I tend to write things on scraps and, and they're gone. I, I have no space that I, I don't have a writing desk and a writing space. I write anywhere. So, yeah, things just get lost otherwise. Yeah, like I have, I, I, I would have a, a document, um, or, you know, there might be two documents with, say, a list of character names. As they come in, I write them, you know, I'll write them into a document. Um, and this time for for this book, there was a dinner. So at the on on the wall over my desk, I drew the table and um, who they were, and it was stuck on the wall over my desk. And so that found its way into the book then as well. Um, it was like Hugo, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a little bit. I wanted to have that kind of you know vintage feel. And the other thing that I do is there's one other thing I was going to say there. Yeah, oh yeah, the other thing then, you know, if there's plot strands or whatever, uh, especially as you get to the end, like, like Amy was saying about having the break, the, you know, the plot mm. of stuff, um, like I would have a, a, or I have a big thing on my wall or back of my door uh, with, the, with the various strands, just one word on each of them, just to remind myself about all the strands so that at the end, I have to make sure that you know there's a tick to make sure that they're all tied up. You know, they might be yeah, they might be personal strands for Finn, or they might be you know subplots or red herrings. But if there is a red herring, there still has to be an explanation for the red herring because otherwise you're just cheating the reader. Yeah. You Can know? I just say there, Catherine, if, if, if you ever went missing or anything, that would really confuse the guards if they were searching your office. Where is she? Oh my god. Yeah, I know when she was in someone's computer. Yeah. It's like you're in there with her, you see, and you're in her mind, you know, so this is really interesting. So, yeah. I'm just going to say, I actually do print off images of my characters. So, for the dark hours, I have a man who. He had his nose broken a long time ago. He's very tall. He has piercing blue eyes, I think. And I had a picture of Liam Neeson on the side of the um, screen. And I ended up with a document with all my main players choosing an actor or actress that I say just imagine they made a movie of this book. Who do I want to play? And it was really helpful at the beginning because that, be, that is who they look like then to me, and that's at the front cover. But I'm not sure if, if you're aware of the narrative arc, and I have that printed off and taped onto my computer, and then I, I do plot out my book 
with the headings of um, the rising tension, resolution, falling action, and I, I just have what's happening under each of those headings. So the thriller is supposed to, is to follow this rising arc where um, you build your tension up and then you have a scenario and then the tension drops and you have a resolution. Um, and I do plot now and each one goes under those headings as to what I think constitutes the, the rising action and, and all that. But I do print images of each character and keep them next to me when Zana, I'm writing. Um, do you remember the movie Nanny McPhee? Yes. So Anna is Evangeline. Okay. And what about oh Tom? no, I'm mixing up my characters. Anna's oh, blonde. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh yes, Anna is the girl who is in Mad Men. January Jones. Yeah. Is Anna. Really <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And what about Tom? Tom Gallagher is. Did anyone watch Fortitude? Yes. Yeah. The uh, season two mayor. Oh, I didn't watch season two. Oh, okay. <laughs> he, he was also um, Rebus, the older Rebus, not John oh, Hannah yeah. Rebus, the older oh, Rebus. That's uh, Tom Gallagher. Well, thank you all for coming down. Thanks, Cara. I'm sure you're lagging out of this stage. And please, they have books and they're good to sign books. And I've read all of them and I would really recommend them. So if you have you know, any inclination or any time in the next few weeks to read, uh, please get a book from them. And thanks to Cara, because she did an amazing job. Yeah, I hope you sell lots of books. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. So thank you all for coming. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.